I, I just wanted to say I thought it was very weird that because the whole scene with Polo saying, "Yeah, I want to go see the girl and like check out that wagon," and Rich <laughs> is like, "No, you idiot." And my thought is, "What did I say? Something stupid without thinking?" No, that no. Was uh, <laughs> hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic's review of the 2005 HBO original series Rome. Then, gentlemen, let's get into our discussion on HBO's Rome Season 1, Episode 3, An Owl in the Thornbush. Now, this week, our man on point was going to be BP. So, BP, I will let you take the lead here. How do you want to kick off this episode? All righty. Before we kind of dive into everything, I just kind of wanted to hear everyone's general thoughts on this episode. What did you like it? Didn't like it? Best episode of the season so far. Whoever wants to share their general thoughts, I will go last. Sure, I'll I'll go ahead and take the lead on this. Um, this was a solid episode. It was a good episode. It was probably, for me personally, the least exciting of the three episodes we've seen so far. I would categorize this episode as a chessboard episode where it's kind of just setting up pieces, setting up characters, getting them certain places, adding some tension, but no big break in tension. I would say personally, but what about you other guys? The medium of television continues to baffle me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just just when I think I got it figured out, they pull the rug out from under me. Uh, I say that because the show is largely striking the same tone as it has the last two episodes, but (laughs) that's nothing like real life, right? Or anything else? It's uh, like they made the MCU series of movies into just week after week. What? Yeah, what's going on? That's not cinema. <laughs> uh, I thought it was fine. Um, I think maybe I was a little sick when I was watching or just like heat exhausted from work. So um, I, I, in my head, did not like this one as much, but I thought it was good. I do think this was the weakest episode thus far. Not that I didn't like it. I thought it was good. It just, it felt like... Like Mr. K said, uh, a chessboard episode. I feel like things are moving around, less dense, more just set up for the future. I am definitely glad that this uh, is kind of on the same consensus for everybody. I would agree that this is also my least favorite episode of the season so far. And it's not really anything wrong with it. There's just, it's just kind of what Mr. K said. It is a chessboard episode. I don't really have anything else to say. I don't even have a really a least favorite part of this episode. Yet this episode is my least favorite of the season so far. Sure, sure, yeah. All righty. Well, Can thank you. Guys you all. hear my cat coughing up a hairball? I'm so sorry. Did that no, come no. Uh, <laughs> I had no clue anything was happening. Cool. He's good. Um, apologies if my dog barks in the middle of this podcast for any re- random reason. All righty. Like Anthony. <laughs> all righty out of my curiosity how many of you still before i kind of dive into the episode does anybody still ever watch the opening or do you all hit skip intro i am i am a a hardcore um traditionalist i watch every intro to every single tv show i ever watch which is just this tv show but (laughs) every second of it uh, yeah, I always watch it because uh, HBO 
sometimes, you know, it gets a little silly with intros depending on like season to season. So I want to really ingrain this one in my head to see if it'll change in season two. I don't remember because I always skipped it the first time I watched it. Uh, I'm a I'm a purist, so I usually anytime I'm watching a show, I watch the opening. I feel like it's part of the intended experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> I think I think it's the adolescence of watching anime for me, with just such good music and it changes like all the time, like the art and the song. I'm like, yeah, it's a quintessential part of the viewing experience. How do I know what the big bad guy looks like before I even meet him in the show? In this case, obviously different story, but yes. I did watch this episode three times. I did not skip the first viewing. I skipped it the other two times just to kind of get to the gist of the episode, just mainly for this podcast. But we open up in the roll credits, City of Rome, or in this case, roll commercials. Atia is whipping uh, the slave caster. And the reason why this is kind of... I wouldn't necessarily say interesting, but something that kind of shows who Atia is as a character. Octavian asks why, and Atia says that he's ruined us all. And Brutus is explaining that Caesar has committed treason with a single legion of suicidal treason. Uh, Cato checks Pompey, uh, and Caesar, Caesar invaded with a single legion, and Pompey is gathering his legions to defend the city of Rome. However, we learned later on in this episode, this may not fully work out the way he may initially think. I, I want to note something real quick. One, BP, you said a uh, cue commercial break. Um, first of all, this is not TV. This is HBO. The other thing, I don't know if you guys were confused like I was at first, like Adia whipping the slave Caster, and she's like, he's ruined us yeah. all. And like, I totally forgot. It's like, oh my God, what did, what did Caster do to betray her? And it's like, oh, it's, she's just totally taking her anger out, like yep. uh, directed at Caesar. Did nothing on the wrong. Slave. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like as soon as she started talking about Julius Caesar, like, oh, girl, just mad. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I didn't want to use interesting as a word to describe the sequence because it's really not interesting. It's horrible, but that shows who Adia is as a character. Yeah. It's also, it's, yeah, it's edited kind of weird and it's written kind of odd, but we cut over to uh, Caesar's army traveling to Rome. As we mentioned in the previous episode, they have crossed onto Italy territory. So now every single member of Caesar's army is a rebellion. Caesar gives orders to Varinus and Polo for an advance party with no pillaging of Italy. What he means by that is unless there is resistance from Pompey's army, don't fight. And same thing towards civilians. If Pompey's army does not attack, do not uh, attack the civilians. And Mark Antony tells Caesar Varinus is... I am so sorry. Kay, can you pronounce this for me? Yeah, Catonian. He he belongs to Cato's faction, yeah. Catonian. And Antony says that they can still trust Varinus despite this, because as we mentioned in the previous episode, that Varinus is not thrilled to be on Caesar's side at this moment because of him being a Catonian. Do you think that this is a, a smart move by Caesar, or do you think this is kind of thankless for Varinus and Polo or I think I think it's a riskless move for Julius Caesar right because up until this point Varinus has proven himself 
very very reliable and like not not rebellious like he's listened to every order he's been given even when he's hated that order uh like when he was sent to retrieve the eagle and okay he's a catonian uh caesar said not to fight the pompeians so what's he gonna do uh fight the pompeians no that he wouldn't do that he might defect but what caesar's down one general i think it's it's a fine fine risk seconded so moved. I uh, agree, but I also like. I think there's a slight bit of risk just in that. Like, I am not aware to the degree to which Caesar knows Varinus's character based on him asking Antony about it. I would assume not very well. That just uh, sending out one of your scouts that could very well just in the night attack the rest of the men and possibly like get away and defect to the Pompeians could be an issue in the future. Granted, I would be confident that Varinus wouldn't do that, but Caesar doesn't like have his measure, so to speak. That's fair. Yeah, I didn't see this as much as like what Jacob had mentioned that this is pretty riskless. Going on to the next scene here, we have the return of Niobe, and we found out in the previous episode, or at least um, Jacob didn't realize until we were talking about it on the podcast, that Niobe actually had a child while Varinus was at war. And it was not their daughters. No. Correct. The lie that Niobe said to Varinus was that it is a grandchild of Niobe and Varinus. Oh, oh, next thing you know, we find out that it's not that. And baby daddy's in the picture. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Niobe hears the door open, and what do you know? It is the father of the baby, and he wants to renew this love that she and and him had while Varinus was away, but Niobe, knowing how honorable Varinus is, this is not a good idea. And she tries to kick him out. However, they do kiss, but somebody, I can't remember who it is. Somebody does walk in. Yeah, it's daughter. um it's it's the daughter. And I, yes, I honestly don't think at this point in the series, like uh Verena's daughter has been named, but her name is Verena the Elder. So yeah, the eldest daughter walks in on um uh and the the baby daddy his name is evander pulcio i don't know if that was actually named in the episode but it's subtitled in there so uh, uh verena the elder walks in on evander kissing niobe and she you know she thinks it's like uh um she wanted that on purpose or something like that but no it was more forceful stuff like that and verena is trying to tell niobe what if we're just honest with papa uh, we should tell him, you know, uh, what happened. We thought he was dead, everything like that. And Niobe says, no, we cannot tell Varinus. He'll kill us all. So real, real kind of dark implication there. Yeah. So I've decided uh, that I'm going to be calling this guy Simpio. Oh, my God. Let's go. Perfect. They didn't give us a name. This is kind of a nitpick in the writing here. You would think that if she thought Varinus was dead, that like there had to have been some sort of like messenger from Caesar's camp, like that would pass along messages of like, Hey, your spouse passed away or your child passed away, or your child is missing. Your spouse is missing. We couldn't find 
the body and things like that. I mean, you would she think... kind of got that because the checks stopped coming and the bank was like, or the treasury, I don't know what, uh, the, how the system works. They were like, yeah, checks stopped coming. Uh, these things, you know, they happen all the time. And it usually means death and we don't make a lot of mistakes. So uh, he's probably dead, man. All right. Hey, get a load of this girl over here. She thinks her husband's alive. <laughs> <laughs> what a chump. Cutting to Verenus's camp. At this camp, Verenus is asking Polo <laughs> advice about women beautiful. and their perfections. Oh my and Verenus wants to know how to get his wife to stop hating him. Polo thought it was obvious. Polo thought he was behind, was being hated on purpose. And I will say, Polo does give advice to Verenus, and I must say, these these guys have had each other's backs last couple of weeks. Like last week, Verenus was giving Polo advice on uh, brothels to go to. This week, Polo is giving him marriage advice. We're getting dangerous, dangerously close to this friendship being uncloseted. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> but yeah, their 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 bond. I'll be honest has come a lot more like natural for me i think in the first episode it kind of felt a little kind of just shoved in there in terms of just like in terms of chemistry with the actors it's not necessarily that i thought it was bad it's more of just it just kind of felt like we'll pair these up because they're the like hold on let me let me stop you bp that like that's the point they they don't get along together and it's like the growth of both of them is that they do start getting together yeah no i i think it's very intentional by the writers i'm I know. I'm saying I was trying to get to the grand scheme of it all. It's making me appreciate the writing of their okay. dynamic much more. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And they also talk about wanting to die in battle. I don't think they say they. I don't think they want, want to. to. I think they're they like have accepted the reality. Yeah. Polo's like, uh, you know, I- I'll put flowers on your grave. Uh, and Brandis is like, homie, you're gonna be dead too. We're all gonna <laughs> die on this suicide mission. That's right. <laughs> Got back to Rome, we get the return of a character from the very first episode, which is Timon. Atia, for context, is coming out to the street saying, talking about how she is hosting a dinner party for the evening. Then Timon comes up, and <laughs> this rules. exchange... This exchange rules? Gosh. This exchange rules. <laughs> I absolutely love this uh, sequence because Timon thinks, because in that first episode, she talks about... <laughs> Um, how he smells like a horse. This episode, he cleans up. He puts on some perfume and she says the horse would smell better. I think this is just really a really funny moment in this episode. And Timon advises Alita to, Atia, excuse me, to uh, lay low with Pompey's mobs out. And Atia, of course, knowing Atia, just refuses. Timon negotiates that he'll need more and wants to have sex with Atia in exchange, who slaps him in return. This this is all really a really funny sequence for it me. It came in off kind of weird to me, I want to say, that in the first episode, she had sex with Timon to get a horse, but here she it's like, uh, in return for more men that will keep you and your family alive, I want sex again. Yeah. And she says, no, I have standards. I'll do it for a horse, but not for my family. <laughs> that is weird. Oh my god, I never thought. Of that I mean, way. given I mean, the reason why I find it so humorous is I don't want to jump ahead too quickly, but I mean, you see the conversations Adia has 
about her kids. She does yeah. not think that I highly. I think of this them. is great because it's just like a brief moment of levity where Atia is not the one in control. Timmons just like, yeah, if you want this, you're gonna have to play my game. And we're going to have to engage in creating the beast with two backs. Um, <laughs> the horizontal mambo, as it oh, were. Guys, guys, hold on. <laughs> guys, PG show, come on. Uh, <laughs> um, anyways, Timon, Timon reveals that he has a family and he'll leave if he can't have Atia. And then Atia responds with payment after services. And uh, Timon tries to grope her. And that's... Uh, doesn't try. He succeeds. Slaps him away. That, is, yeah. a, that is a classic honk if I've ever seen one. <laughs> well, next up, we get our first little battle scene. It's, you know, uh, HBO's Realm, it's a lot of taste of battle scene. No actual battle scene. But uh, Varinus and Polo, they encounter some of Pompey's outriders. Uh, Varinus, he wants to wait. And he's like, all right, we're about to encounter resistance. Let's pause here. We only got some auxiliaries. And Polo's like, no, no, we can take him. Come on. And he, like, inspires the men to charge, and they go along. I don't know if you guys noticed. It is revealed later in the episode, but a lot of Pompey oh. soldiers are very, very young-looking men. I did see that. Yeah, yeah. They run away uh, very quickly from the camp. And, I mean, that just goes awful for Pompey because he gets told that the scouts are 30 miles from Rome. They're moving, they're moving very fast there it's also i think the reason why i think pompey's soldiers are kind of are a lot younger than caesar's at this moment is because if you kind of think about it they're trying to overthrow caesar because he has been in power too long and it's kind of that idea of younger people just wanting a change in the political spectrum that's going on especially since uh many viewed caesar as a tyrant I actually would argue the opposite, BP. Um, Julius Caesar, for a lot of people in this moment, is a sign of potential change and bringing power back to the common folk. And more so the reason that we see Pompey's forces being young is because um, they're, the city of Rome's legions are away at other places or uh, like there are legions that uh, are around, but they formerly served Julius Caesar in Gaul, thus necessitating the rapid training of new uh, cadets. Yeah, no, my thought when I saw him was like a uh, bottom of the barrel, basically like, you know, mm-hmm. fresh face, no allegiance as of yet. So they're recruited, drafted, whatever, um, but they are not, uh, you know, Polo and uh, some barbarians are able to run them off very quickly without yeah. them putting up a fight. Uh, my first observation when seeing Polo just like charging in after being explicitly told not to to fight unless you encounter resistance is uh, if this was a main series episode, a D-O-T-R-R-R uh, or D-O-T-R-R, I always add an extra R. Uh, this would be a part where you clip in the It's Always Sunny from Philadelphia. Wild card! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think no matter what happens, Polo is never going to really listen to orders. He is, he, like, in the previous episode, wants to attack one guy that attacked him for the dice game, and lo and behold, Mark Antony's veto could not go through, and that, so this whole thing is starting. So Polo, very, very impulsive. He, he brought down the Republic. I have a couple points about that. The first, I would say, uh, Polo probably follows orders if he agrees with them. 
but he's uh, he believes himself to be of better judgment than a lot of people, I think. And also, the him attacking that guy, uh, the guy attacked him first. So what was he supposed to just be like? Okay, I guess I'll die. Yeah, uh, I don't know. As as we continue with this latest instance of Polo thinking uh, violently, Pompey thinks that, you know, he's told the scouts are 30 miles out from Rome. They're moving fast. Pompey thinks that Caesar's coming to attack Rome directly. And, you know, as Jacob had said, the legions that are around Rome, they are either the recruits that just ran. Oh, but we do have some veterans who serve Caesar, so we can't really trust them so much. So Pompey says very sternly that his legions need four days to assemble cicero says that caesar's only two days away so pompey says well then we have to make a tactical retreat which upsets cato and he never says explicitly why but there's like a lot of hints throughout the episode and just like how i mean mind-blowing it'd be to apply this to your own country like you know they're basically abandoning their capital city they're abandoning washington dc also they speak of it in religious terms that the sacred city is going to fall to an invader but pompey says we have to retreat we have to gather strength away from rome but then when we have it we can retake rome because caesar snow is still there he cannot get reinforcements until spring cato argues with him that he is losing the capital city of Rome, and that's unconscionable, but nonetheless, that is the decision they ultimately go out with. And I think that this decision will bite Pompey very hard in the near future. On paper, the idea isn't necessarily god-awful, but it might be one of the worst tactics that Pompey could pull, because now, even though he's going to get reinforcements, who knows what can happen, and a certain amount of time i mean yeah that that is a fair point but i wondered like i don't know if pompey really had any good options in this scenario because co complains about yeah we shouldn't have been to rome we should stay and it's like okay cato what, what's your plan how are we gonna not all get killed by caesar's men you come up with the plan but cato like he i think he smartly turns it back around on pompey he's like hey you're the one who was supposed to be our leader, you lost Rome before you even got the chance to unsheath your sword. Like, <laughs> this is on you, man, for bad preparation. Moving on to the next sequence here, we have, we're at Adia's dinner party, and Adia being Adia is not happy because a mob throws a torch into Adia's. People are screaming at her. They're trying to break into the door. And Octavian, I will say is very, 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 very smart in knowing the politics of Rome for how young he is. Like he is, he knows, if, like he knows the schemes, he knows how they all work. He knows how the maneuvering works. He thinks that Pompey's decision is deceptively weak and Adia does not believe him. And Adia says all their friends have abandoned him, abandoned them, excuse me. And Brutus is there just kind of being like, we haven't in referring to him and his mother and yeah this is a pretty interesting sequence and i think it's mostly because of what octavian talks about in terms of because every time and i think we talked about this in the first episode we talked about how octavian explains this the politics and makes it so easy to digest and understand from an audience perspective and i think he does i think the writing for octavian does that again here I'd also like to say, I want to give a, a shout out 
my boy Octavian. I think in this episode he was at his least creepy. And, uh, <laughs> he really was. I have no faith that that will continue as a thing, but got a, he didn't do anything weird in this episode, so I'm just a, yeah. I'm happy for him. The next couple scenes are kind of weird. They just kind of cut back and forth, like mostly about Pompey. One, it's like his wife Cornelia, uh, new wife Cornelia, is threatening to execute the slaves who don't upkeep their house while they escape. Pompey is preparing to leave, but he entrusts one of his men, Durio, to clandestinely, sort of, it seems like, trying to keep it on the low, take as much as Rome's treasury with them as possible. Pompey departs from Cornelia. It seems like the women and children are going ahead there. Back to Adia's, a mob is pounding on the door, so Servilia and Brutus are going to stay the night. That was a really short scene. Before we stray too far, uh, Kay was describing uh, this scene where Pompey is, you know, sending off uh, family and kids and uh, the people. Um, and I actually had two observations that I thought were quite interesting. Thank you. Um, one was... I've had my hand up for like a minute because I want to talk about this scene. <laughs> I was being ignored. Yeah. I was I was so surprised, or maybe maybe I wasn't so surprised, but I was pleasantly surprised to see Cornelia and Pompey actually seem to like each other, like they seem to be in love, mm-hmm. and which wouldn't have been the case if he had married Octavia. And also, we get introduced uh, very briefly, and not by name, but we do see the two sons of one Pompey Magnus, uh, mm. which uh, seems interesting. Interesting. Mm. I I wanted to say I thought you had noticed something that I had. Poppy came off very weird in that scene, and I'm kind of wondering if maybe he's suffering from, like, Alzheimer's or, like, some form of dementia, because, like, that scene came off very weird, where he, like, uh, Durio walks up to him and is like, yeah, the treasury's ready, and he's just kind of standing there, and Cornelia's like, yeah, Poppy, and he's like, what, and he's like, oh, go, go, go get the treasury ready, and he's like, yes, sir. And oh, okay. It, it came off very weird to me. Huh. I can... He's got a lot on that. his plate, that Pompey. I I really thought of that. I didn't think of that like so analytically cool. I thought more it's like he's lost in thought as he's contemplating himself and his family abandoning the city of Rome when he styles himself as the greatest general in Roman history. But, you know, that's that's an interesting observation, Cole. Speaking of his boy Durio, he's not long for the world because as he's taking the treasury, mm-hmm. he's leaving with the soldiers. Durio is like, hey, let's go this way. Uh, Stab uh, gets killed and Pompey's defecting soldiers run off with the wealth, essentially. BP, did you have something to say? Uh, yeah, this is like very much like that. This is kind of I don't know if anyone else saw it this way. I kind of saw this as a little bit of foreshadowing to note that like desertion is going to happen. People are going to leave their armies. They realize that some things are worth more or sometimes money just is the answer for them. This scene confused me because I was like, what just happened? Who, who, who stabbed who, who, what's going on? I was like, oh, there must be a cesarean's uh, supporters within the, the, the Mm. people of Pompey's. Um, and that's why the little stab stab incident happens. Uh, but then as you said, uh, they aren't that. And I still actually, by the end of the episode, I was like, I thought for sure that was maybe what it was, but then events will get to happen. I'm like, who, who are these people? But it's good to know they're just defecting Pompeian soldiers. I yeah, this dude wasn't named in the episode. The, the dude who stabbed uh, Durio 
Uh, his name is Appius. He is not named in the episode, but that's what I saw on IMDb. So the dude who actually stabbed Stereo, the, the ringleader, his name is Appius, just for our purposes mm. going forward. Coming back to Varinus, Polo is giving Varinus sex advice. And Varinus yeah. is getting <laughs> quite upset with Polo uh, when he is describing the clitoris and that uh, believing that Polo had laid with Niobe. And How Polo's, do you know that? How do you know that? And Polo says that all women women have them. He knows. Polo knows. He's the he's experienced in such matters. Yes. Um, Pompey's defects abduct, abduct a woman who is leaving Rome, and something tells me that this woman is going to become very important to this story. Not just in this episode, but later on in the season. I don't know what could give you that uh, indication. Oh, given that Polo likes her or seems to like her. Hey, spoilers for the next BB. twenty minutes. Is this finally the Indira Varma person? No, no, no. It, no. Indira Varma is actually is actually Niobe. It's it's Verena's wife. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we're going back to Adia's party. The house is being rammed on Adia. This is where I'm saying that obviously, like, she slaps Timon for saying that she has somewhat of a moral ambiguity. We talked about Timon offering to protect her family, but she doesn't want to do that. This is the proof, in my opinion, that she does not really love her kids, especially Octavia, because Adia plans to kill Octavia and instructs Castor about killing her and it'd be inappropriate if she died and he lived. So she is asking Castor to commit suicide following killing Octavia if he needs to. And he's like, and oh my God, this is the dude that Addy was whipping just out of spite. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, you should you should kill yourself uh, if I die. And he's like, of course, Domina. It's like, oh my God, this poor <laughs> man. And he also said he also said something like, I don't need to live or don't have a reason to live or something along that line. I was like, what the heck is this guy's deal? (laughs) Talk about talk about uh, Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) Well, I don't don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome and more if he says no, they will just kill him there. And he could also very easily just not kill himself afterwards and just be telling her that. I don't know if he would go that route, but it's an option. But I, my main thing that I wanted to address was the whole saying Octavia and Octavian aren't loved by Adia. I don't know about that because I viewed this whole interaction of her saying, I'll kill Octavia and then Castor, you kill me. I viewed it as a, she is very afraid of what the mob is going to do to them and views that just her killing Octavia would be better than whatever is going to happen to her otherwise. Yeah, it's the honorable thing to do. Or or the way to avoid torture. There's other evidence yeah. of Adia's feelings towards Octavia specifically. Well, I, well yes. Yeah, she she obviously views her children as a game piece. But Speaking of Octavia, Adia and her argue about what is the right thing to do in this situation. And all of a sudden, the mob has stopped trying to ram the door open they wait a second i think it's octavian that says that they like Adia and octavian need to stop talking because they're trying to catch if there's anything going on they wait a little bit and timon opens the door and that mob is gone it was a little confusing in terms of the editing for me at first but 
I wasn't unable to pick up what had happened. It just, it kind of made it qu- me question of like, oh, did somebody just like, did a couple people just like come in and like slaughter this entire mob? Or is it like, did they just vanish to go with Pompey's retreat? It kind of didn't make a hundred percent sense from an editing perspective for a second, but I was able to put the pieces together. I think maybe I'm misremembering, but I think that I didn't pick up on what the deal was with the mob. So if that could be explained to me, because I, I feel like I missed what that was intended oh, to oh. Like, imply. No, no, I got this. Like, I mean, it's it's the next scene. It's never explicitly stated, but it, it like Timon opens the door. The mob is gone. It cuts to the newsreader announcing that Pompey has left the city, that all nobles have done the same. If you are staying in the city of Rome, you become an enemy of Rome because you're just waiting for Caesar to get there. And so basically, it's like the government officials are evacuating the city. People are in a panic and want to get out of there. And if you think about it, it, who are the people who'd be pounding on Adia of the Julii's door? It would be uh, Pompeian supporters. So if Pompey's leaving the city, they are probably skedaddling as well. So I think that's the implication there. But Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And among the people leaving with Pompey, we got Cato and Cicero there. There are Romans uh, boarding up their homes like Niobe, for example. She talks with her friend Clarissa. I wasn't quite sure if Clarissa was a slave. I'm pretty sure not. I'm pretty sure she's just a friend who notes that Pompey doesn't seem too happy that Verena's is home, even though Niobe thinks she is. And Clarissa seems like a terribly out of place name. I don't think that sounds very Latin slash Roman at all. It doesn't. It's also really interesting because they have Clarissa and uh, Niobe have a very similar conversation to what Niobe and Polo had last week in the previous episode because they were talking about this entire time Niobe wanted Verena's to come home. And now that he came home, she does not like that he's back. And I think this is kind of the uh, same scenario where she's not really sure what exactly she really wanted in the end all at this point we know she's not happy that Verena's is going to be home but it's more of just the question like that whole moral question that she had does debate debating during the previous episode yeah no it, it's all oscar wilde uh there's only two tragedies in life in, in life one is not getting one what one wants the other is getting it that's that's what niobe is experiencing right now yes and going to the next scene with Brutus in the in the very first episode, I mentioned that I think that Brutus is a very conflicted character, and I think this is the scene that kind of solidified that way to describe him because Brutus is angry that Pompey and others are leaving, and says half the Senate has left. Brutus says that if they say they declare for Caesar, if they leave, they're with Pompey, and there's no middle ground. Brutus is not really sure what to do, but Servilia pushes him to decide and in a twist of faith brutus chooses pompey the republic is much more important to him than friendship and the reason why the republic is so much more important to him is because of his family's history in politics servilia says she's not leaving him and that brutus says that caesar may rule out for any length of time but some other ambitious man will kill and take his kill him and take his place then servilia will be in danger as his mistress brutus says his mom's too and needs to buy a slave to take care of it 
Servilia tells him to go, and Servilia tells him to not be angry. Brutus kisses her on the hand, and he leaves. I think this is a very, I felt this was actually overall a very tender moment between Brutus and Servilia. In like, obviously, there's a few lines that obviously don't make it all that, but it was a, it's, I think this is honestly going to be the last time that Brutus and Servilia see each other. So I think this is kind of them knowing that they're saying goodbye to each other. Okay. Very touching. This scene makes me realize I've like, I've been having this revelation a lot, just these first three episodes, but it was like this show constantly cuts between different characters and parallel relationships that highlights the differences between them. Like Polo and Varinus are like a low tier version of Caesar and Antony. It's like one's the cold logical one, one's the brute. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that contrasts Servilia and Brutus versus Adia's family, it's like they're in a similar situation yet they handle things so differently and it just like this the show parallels each other with different characters in different ways and i didn't appreciate that the first time i watched it it's pretty cool hey you need to become a public speaker about reviewing art and history appreciate it octavia she is leaving adia's house and adia is immediately told timon was about to have sex with her but is told to go fetch his men to get octavia Octavia is with Glavius, who asked why he hasn't left yet since he's with Pompey. And Glavius says he'll be gone by sunrise. A kid dressed as Cupid leads them into a bedroom. This was a very weird... That was weird. I agree. (laughs) So maybe... The kid was blind. Right, okay. So maybe Clay... Clay... K, maybe K has some clairvoyance on this. Um, was this like a brothel ran by or a love hotel ran by blind people? Um, d- I didn't catch. Wait, you guys all think the kid was blind? I honestly didn't see there that. Were, there were two blind people yeah. in the scene. The kid was not the only one. Oh, really? I didn't catch that. I thought I smacked no, him like a stick against house. the wall so he would know where he was. Oh, no. I, I totally missed that, I guess. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I thought this was just Glabius's house. Maybe he is blind servants for such purposes. Wow, no, that's a great question, guys. I don't know. Tweet at the show at D-O-T-R-R-Pod yeah. if you know. Tell us. Yeah, but Octavia and uh, Glavius have sex. Timon confronts Glavius as he is leaving, and Glavius gives him money as a bribe, and Glavius understands that this is Adia's doing, and Timon says he won't let Glavius's men live, and Timon kills Glavius. Yeah, it's it's like um you know like uh Glavius is trying to negotiate for his life with the bride, but Timon kind of again he seems like a man who kind of relishes in violence. He's like he's not gonna take this bribe, anything like that. And he's kind of he's got a little sneer on his face for about what's gonna go down. I just was, I don't know if I would necessarily say he was trying to like bribe to get away with his life. Uh, he thought that Timon was there to rob him, so he just pulled the money. I was like, all right, you want my money. Here's my money. Goodbye. And he says, nah, sorry. That's not what this is about, man. You got the wrong idea, bub. I The reason why I felt it was a bribe, it's because of what Timon says in response, saying bribery won't save you or something along oh, those okay. lines. But we will robbery. talk a little bit. I might be we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Timon killing Glabius 
Yeah, the next up is Niobe listening to the riots in the city. It's a short moment, and then it gets on to another short scene with Polo and Varinas. This scene does not need to be in the episode. It serves no purpose except to make Polo sound like a fourth grader to sleepover. <laughs> but they're just like, uh, you know, Polo's like, what? What's with the stars? You know, what? what's that like, Daddy? Uh, and, uh, you know, they're talking about <laughs> Roman astronomy, stuff like that. Like, Varinus is, like, so confident. It's like, well, there are holes in the sky where we see more of heaven. But I was like, do you, are they very big, do you think? Could a man climb through them? And he's like, oh, they're probably very large, yet they seem small because it's so far away. And it's so funny because it's like, it's not... A hundred percent incorrect. He's not like stars are very big things, you know. It's 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 yeah. very cute. I love that the scene. scene. Reminded me of the the scene where Timon and Pumbaa are looking at the stars uh, in the Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I I you, Kay, you mentioned this was weird. I actually kind of like when movies or TV shows, specifically like war film or TV shows, do this type of scene because I feel like in every like war show or every war movie, we always constantly get like talk of battle, talk of strategy and things like that. And it's very rare whenever we find a moment where we just interact with the characters as normal humans. A slice of life. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I don't, I, I, in real re reality speaking, you wouldn't, I, I personally, if, unless I'm in like a meeting or anything like that, I wouldn't want to talk about war strategy or things like that. I want to, Get to know my comrades. BP, like what that. meetings are you anyway. going to? Hold on. <laughs> Talking about war strategy. I think before you move on, BP, I do want to say this is the scene where I'm like, yeah, they're friends now. And you cannot argue the point. These two are friends. Mm. And they don't care yes. if the world knows. Yes. Cutting back to Rome, we have, am I pronouncing this wrong? Numa and his wife begged before Adia's feet <laughs> begging begging no before Adia's feet i want to make sure that came across okay <laughs> <laughs> wants protection because some people think he's with pompey and Adia states that numa stays because he's scared to be robbed and Adia states that he must pay her 5000 denarii for protection there's a lot of cutting back and forth on things within this moment Cato tells Pompey that Durio is long overdue Cato asks if he doesn't arrive how will they pay and feed the legions Pompey tells him to stop worrying unbeknownst to both them in an example of dramatic irony where the audience knows more than the characters they don't realize that Durio has been stabbed and killed we cut to Varinus and who can see Rome and he is very confused why they have not encountered resistance unless Pompey disgracefully fled. And this is a very interesting scene. They run into Pompey's defected soldiers dressed in plain clothes. Polo notes the abducted woman. The soldiers tell Varinus that Pompey has fled at Caesar's rapid advance. And Polo wants to purchase the girl who is not for sale. Varinus asks what's in the wagon quote-unquote grain well they they tell him grain they tell you know it's just grain in there Varinus wants to see it's like oh show me soldier and Varinus, uh the dude says oh no no we're not soldiers and Varinus is like oh well you're wearing soldiers boots and sword straw polo and Varinus are killing their uh auxiliaries auxiliaries and attack the defects and appius escapes the wagon but the wagon drags on 
and we will learn a little bit more about what's all in this wagon for sure later in this episode. I mean, we we know what's in it from the prior scene with the wagon. Yeah, yeah. no, I think this is BP. I, I think this is a good example hey. of dramatic irony. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is. I mean, more of we we get to physically see it. We have not physically seen what's in there, all in there yet, and how much it's all really worth. Adia takes allegiance of Procolis, and Atia is told some news that Glavius's body was was killed. Glavius's body is brought to Adia, which Octavia sees, and she cries over it. And my gosh, this is the moment where I'm kind of like. Adia, you do not fully care about Octavia's feelings because she, I mean, to Adia's credit, not just the actor, but the like character of Adia, she plays it so well, claiming she had nothing to do with it. And she almost doesn't play it well. Yeah, I feel like she overcompensated super hard. Because Octavia looks genuine and... Uh, like she genuinely doesn't even suspect it at all. And Antia's like, oh my gosh, you think I did this? And Octavia's like, Legas. At first she doesn't. Well, hold, 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 hold I... on, guys. That, that's, um, that's a little bit of a later scene. Is it really? Before we get too okay. ahead of ourselves, maybe. I do want to shout out the Rome's makeup department here with Gly- Glabius's body. So blue. That's like the most like blood-drained mm-hmm. corpse I've ever seen. I'm sure that's the real actor, but it's like they did a very good job of like, what did Tim and do to that guy? Holy smokes. He must have like severed every, every major artery and hung him upside down. Like that was like nuts to see a, a man so pale there. I did want to note there as well that Adia's arc is just like a political influencer this episode. It's really interesting because like the start of the episode, she's whipping a slave in frustration that Caesar has done this to her. She's planning to kill herself and her family as a mob pounds at the door. And then a couple scenes later, she's like the de facto mob boss of Rome where people pay her for protection. Basically, it's her fortunes just turned around whiplash this episode. Can I can I hit you all with a thought, with an opinion? Yes. I think Atia is emblematic of the problems of Rome. Oh. Uh, or or what has caused Rome to be in this situation in this first in the first place. Uh, leaders who are just hungry for power and more and more power, people wanting to, uh, you know, uh, say they are the best general or the best person to ever lead Rome, et cetera, et cetera. And Atia is in this climb for power parallel to these other leaders. And we see the terrible things that she must do to achieve this power she is after. Well said. She's the little finger of Rome. <laughs> Cutting to Varinus, Varinus arrives at an unguarded Rome, as mentioned to them in the previous scene that uh, Pompey had fled. Uh, Varinus is troubled by this and that they will be tormented for invading Rome and also states that they must follow Caesar's orders, press on until the resistance is met. Polo wants to go back to the wagon and free the girl. Varinus shuts him down. Polo insults him that he is a bastard. Uh, I just wanted to say, I thought it was very weird that, because the whole scene with Polo saying, yeah, I want to go see the girl and like check out that wagon. And Varinus <laughs> is like, no, you idiot. And my thought is, what, did I say something stupid without thinking? No! No, uh, oh, but uh, but uh, th- they didn't check the wagon in the first place. 
those guys were clearly suspicious and lying that it was green and they weren't like hey maybe we should see what's in here but they just left it well it was it was physically moving away from them at the time yeah, uh, yeah it was going at mach 7 was it <laughs> fair point <laughs> led by two oxen yeah as Kay had mentioned we get to the scene that i had jumped ahead to octavia wakes up adia asks why octavia is looking at her like the way she is obviously very upset um octavia confused and adia says she's looking for looking at her like adia did it and which octavia inquires about and adia denies that she had anything to do with the death octavia believes her and hugs her and i think the only reason why i say going back to this the reason why i think adia does play it well is because octavia sees through adia so much through the lies that I like, I could see her actually, I don't know if it's just grief and she's not really thinking about it in terms of is my mom really acting this out or not, or is this genuine belief? Cole, uh, Jacob, I know you guys are both chomping at the bits to share your thoughts here. Cole, why don't you go first? Your thoughts and reactions like seeing this go out. So uh, as I said previously, I don't think adia played this very well i think we saw in the first episode where she's having that meeting with pompey where she was very poorly feigning interest in his story so we have prior evidence she's not the greatest of liars and actresses and i think she just overcompensated to an extreme level when she was accused like i think a normal would have been like no i didn't have anything to do with that but she like gasps and turns like oh, i had nothing to do how could you ever say such a thing just like like acted it out so hard that like grief would be the only reason that Octavio could like have to justify not seeing and through it immediately. Lying in the background is one young man named Octavian. And I can't remember what he says, but you can tell this man is all knowing. No, no, uh, Jacob, he said um, Octavian, you know, like Octavia and Adia hug. Uh, Adia beat the allegations, but Octavian says, who do you think did it, mom? Yeah, it's like, I, I think for all intents and purposes, like Octavian effectively has a sharing gun when it comes to political machinations in, uh, in Rome. But something I wanted to note here, once again, this episode reinforces my theory that Adia is a very, raises a very Freudian household because like the sequence of octavia looks confused and adia says you're looking at me like i did it but it i i don't know if projection is quite the right word but adia sees a confused face and immediately voices her guilt i i think that adia has in to some degree a guilty conscience where even a confused look from octavia must be addressed and aggressed so she can shut mm -hmm. down the notion that she might have done it but nonetheless she definitely did so that is uh adding to my grand theory of psychoanalytic literary theory in the show um oh my god please can continue bp <laughs> Going to Varinus, he has officially made foot in Rome as well as Polo and the team that Caesar had assembled to send to Rome with Varinus and Polo. Varinus nails Caesar's message to the Senate House, uh, which reassures the Roman people his legit intentions, and he will not be violent against his enemies unless aggressed, and that he will offer uh, 
amnesty amnesty to his enemies Farinas does resign from the 13th and polo says he can't resign claims it's some it's like desertion Farinas departs and he kind of has this mindset of i'm already a rebel i'm already a traitor i'm and so what's different than deserting and and he makes a sacrifice to venus and prays that niobe can love him as he loves her and this kind of interconnects with another scene uh with niobe and i didn't notice this until i read it on the subtitles the second viewing i didn't know she was praying in greek which was really cool uh i I just wanted to pose a question to you all because this is the scene where polo and verenas go their separate ways which do you guys think was the more heart-wrenching breakup Polo and Varinus or Octavia and Glavius? Oh, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) I would personally say Polo and Varinus because we've had more time to get attached to them. And I feel like Polo kind of expects that he will not be seeing Varinus alive again. So he's, he's watching his friend walk away for what will be the last time and i think that that really adds an emotional touch i yeah i have to say varinus and polo and honestly though it's because octavia and clavius they never really get that type of moment where they really get that like obviously in the very first episode they get divorced and they're crying over each other but the thing is they see each other again and so right it's uh we hear about their love. We are not shown their love. Oh, oh. The scene, the scene where they go to the bedroom, it cuts. And then next thing you know, Glavius is in the street and he's getting killed. Like there's no like goodbye between them or anything like yeah. that. There's nothing. I mostly pose the question as a joke, but yes, uh, I agree on all fronts. <laughs> Niobe does pray as well. And Varinus arrives and... Niobe is washing his feet and Varinus tells her that she is beautiful and it's a polo move. Varinus wants to talk and he kind of opens up. He says something when he says you are beautiful, he says um, something like I haven't said as much as I should. Niobe, she gets a little teared up when um, Varinus mentions that he can change for his grandchild. He can change. And Niobe specifically tears up at the invocation of their grandchild. We know why. Varinus maybe doesn't know why so much. And Varinus says, you know, I'll leave without rancor. I'll leave without trouble if you don't want me to try to change. And Niobe starts tearing up even more claiming that she has done wrong which we as an audience and a lot of the characters do know that she has but Verena's doesn't but she can't get to say it out loud because she knows what Verena's will do but Verena says that it is in the past it is done we start again and he hugs her to quote Kylo Ren let the past die (laughs) I kind of thought maybe I'm alone in this assumption I thought by the way that Niobe was speaking that Varenus correctly inferred that the child was not his or not obviously what the kid is what what am I saying it's not his uh, grandchild that it was exactly I was of a similar uh, mind I don't know if he specifically put that together but it very much felt like he was at least aware that like she had strayed in some like he he put that together at least it felt like yeah I put in all caps in my notes good guy Varenus and to be fair if he is kind of putting some type of pieces together. If he's really wanting to improve, 
she did think he was dead and he knows that she thought that. So maybe that's, I don't know. It, Varinus is an honorable person. We'll see what happens in the future. Polo finds the wagon and the woman is passed out with her hand still tied uh, to the wagon. Uh, Polo frees her. Polo discovers the gold. He is an awestruck. And it kind of, <laughs> the way this, the thing opens, we don't see the gold for a second. It kind of, I don't know why. It just briefly reminded me of that scene when John Travolta opens up the briefcase and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. You see, you see the gold on his face and you see how excited he is. Yeah, uh, Durio's soul is what, what was actually in the, in the box. Polo <laughs> 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 sets the woman on the car. He disguises himself and moves the oxen out of the way of Caesar's advance. And I really like this like ending sequence where uh, they're playing the music and it's not like super depressing music, but it's not like the most upbeat. And I love Caesar's just get more up. doesn't yell, but like get more upbeat. <laughs> BP, your tone there was like wildly inaccurate. I was like, whoa. What That's why saying? I said he doesn't yell. <laughs> He's like, hey, can we get something more? Like, I feel like he was very calm about it. <laughs> but that concludes season one, episode three. And Al in the Thornbush. Once again, my least favorite episode of the season so far. And I think that's kind of the consensus all around. Not because it was bad, just not the most exciting, right? Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there wasn't as much happening. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what I said at the beginning. Nothing, nothing is egregiously wrong with this episode. It's just not my favorite. And I hate when uh, people listen on the internet and say like, oh, they say it's not their favorite. That means they didn't like it. It's the complete, it does not mean that. Anyways. Well, all right. Well, you three people listening, don't tweet it. Don't tweet that at, at BP. Don't tweet that at DOTRR. Yeah. You know, don't get our, our, our blood pressure up here. Before we go into wrapping things, can I pose um, another question to you guys? Go for it, Jacob. Yeah. Where do you think Crassus is in all this? Now, Crassus is someone we haven't met or encountered yet, but uh, through our own quizzing, we know he is the third triumvir, and he has yet to make his appearance in HBO's Rome. Maybe that's something Cole and I could theorize about when you and Kay are discussing the historical stuff. Perhaps. I, I believe the term was mommy and daddy. Um, you know, <laughs> speaking of that, um, Jacob, I, I think that now's the time to kick the kids out into their playpen um, and you and I can discuss some historicalness. Okay, BP and Cole, I want you guys to discuss four things. Servilia and Brutus, are they going to meet again? Verinus and Polo, are they going to meet again? Does Varinus know uh, Niobe cheated? And where is Crassus in all of this? A person I don't think either of you guys know uh, at all. <laughs> so uh, I want to hear your responses there. All right, Jacob, I honestly don't think there's much historically to talk about this episode. Like, yeah. I compared it to Chapter 12 of Death of the Roman Republic, the episode I produced. And literally, this probably covers the first half. But really, this episode is like not really historical events happening. It's like our characters and this reimagining and their actions and stuff I, like that. Like in real life, this would be like less than a paragraph on a page of actual history if this was real people and important large events and stuff. But I don't know. Did you have any historical comments or questions? No, I actually agree 100%. It just felt like, you know, we're kind of in, in the day-to-day -day part of uh you know, whatever. And and maybe some of these things didn't happen. Maybe some of them did. 
but it's like it's so small in the minutia of the warfare it's like who's to say if actually they sent a, a, a scout group to nail whatever up to the the doors of uh whatever that building was uh, sure yeah yeah the yeah. the forum the rostrum something yeah, yeah the senate sure. house um yeah. okay so jacob i wanted to note here you you brought you invoked crassus um invoked crassus so there were two historical events that we can kind of attribute to Pompey and Caesar turning on each other for the triumvirate failing. One of the things was Julia dying. Caesar's mm -hmm. daughter and Pompey's wife dying severs that link between them. Do you remember what that other thing was that killed the triumvirate? Oh, gosh. Um, hmm. I actually don't now here put on the spot. Oh yeah, no, it's it's no prob. It's uh, the death of Crassus. Crassus not being the third uh, person in the triumvirate. Oh, that's right. That's uh, right. kind of unbalances it. And the thing is, like this, Crassus died invading Parthia, and that has effectively preceded every event that happens in the show. Bad. Crassus, I, I'm not gonna Bad. lie, man. I'm pretty sure Crassus is never named in HBO's Rome. Oh, that's so, so bummerific. He's such a good character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but now, but now it's all making sense to me. Yeah yeah all Dang, right that's stinky okay yeah i you know if if the show ever gets rebooted we we would need a crassus definitely but i'll go ahead and close these rooms here mm -hmm. get back to us and uh i will look forward to hearing their wild goose chase about the status of crassus <laughs> they're having a good discussion yeah they're probably i don't know frantically googling crassus or something like, <laughs> all right we've got cole and bp back okay did you two fellas we did you two fight no, mommy and daddy did not fight. Mom and daddy, mommy and daddy didn't fight. Okay, we're good. <laughs> oh my god, uh, <laughs> Beefy's getting too into character. Maybe okay, guys. I'm gonna hit this rapid fire. Okay, yes or no? Servilia and Brutus are going to see each other again. BP, what do you think? I do not think so. I think that that okay. was a goodbye scene for them without saying goodbye. Cole, Servilia, Brutus, are they gonna see each other again? Yes. All right, all right. So split there. All right. Next up, Cole, you answer first. Verena and Polo, are they going to see each other again? What do you think? Yes or no? Absolutely. You think? All right, Verena and Polo will see each other again. BP, what do you think? I do. I do think they will see each other again. Okay, Jacob, what do you think? Do you think Verena and Polo will see each other again? Oh, without a doubt. Oh, okay. Wait. So one of you guys said that you thought it was. It was. Let the record show. It was BP. It was BP. Let the record show. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I said Verena okay. and Polo. Yes, it was uh, Brutus and Cerebly. Oh my gosh. Cerebly. Uh, no. No, but never mind. It's whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. All right. Halfway through, Verenus knows Niobe was cheating in so many words. BP. What do you think? I think yes, but I had a gray area here that. I think he is a little more understanding because um, she thought he was dead. So she wouldn't have realized that it was adultery until she realized he was alive. You sure. get a pass for that. Cole, what do you think? I think he knows about the cheating. I don't know if he knows about the grandson not being a grandson. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Jacob, what about you? Um, I think he knows it all. Yeah. Okay. okay. No, actually I take that back. I don't think he knows anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> i play both sides so i always come out on top <laughs> <laughs> just because of his character like he's like why why does she hate me and uh, i just reminded that he's so clueless like she hates you because you're treating her like she is dirt so 
Yeah. Okay. I need like one sentence, guys. Cole, you answer first. Where is Crassus? Egypt. All right. BP, where is Crassus? Egypt. All right. Glad we're in agreement there. Where, where can I get to Egypt, guys? So, yeah. Next up, guys, we are going to share our funniest moments and favorite moments from episode three here. No one really had a specific least fave moment that they want to shout out. So we'll go ahead and start with what we thought the funniest moments of the episode was. I'll go ahead and kick us off here. There was, you know, Rome is a very humorous show. I I wanted something a little more understated as my funniest moment. It's at the very end when Antony and Caesar, they're riding together in the column. We barely saw them this episode, but Antony commented on Caesar's composure that he's a bloodstained war hero coming to conquer the city, yet he's as calm as a cup of water. And Caesar just smirks. He's like, I'm glad I appear so. And it's a nice bit of dry humor. And it's it just kind of shows that Caesar, he's not this immune titan, colossus god, immune from emotion that he's maybe quaking in his boots as well, but can't put up that front at all. And it's a nice dry, funny moment, in my opinion. Let's see who's going to hit us with their funniest moment this episode. I'll match your dry humor with my own dry sense of humor. Um, maybe this is very telling about what I find funny, but I think to me, the funniest moment is near the end when Polo and all them are encountering the defected soldiers and they chase them off. And it's just the unnamed woman left with the cart and the cows start walking. And you're like, oh no, <laughs> just like, just the imagery of the woman having to be like slowly drunk along by these cows in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny. The, the fates have not been kind to her. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can go next. The funniest for me was that bit uh, near the midway where Polo is giving Varinus sex advice and is explaining... I, I knew someone would say it. The clitoris, <laughs> because it just... Like, Varinus's reaction to me gives off very, like, Ben Shiro energy. Hmm, hmm. How do you know that? Hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> Facts of hmm? I my funniest moment is a scene that we've already talked about, and I think Jacob worded it best. This is the scene that established it that Venus and Polo are friends. Is the moment they're talking about the stars, and it's just because of the questioning of like, like it's just the questioning. It's so funny. Yeah, he's like a he's like a big kid uh, that's really good at oh, murdering. Um, all right, guys, we'll get into favorite moments of the episode here. I'll go last. Who's gonna kick us off first, though? And I'm gonna roll. Okay, well, right. that works. <laughs> so my favorite is one of the last scenes in the episode where Varinus goes back home and he just sits down while Niobe's washing his feet and has that whole conversation of, I'm sorry, like all I know is how to be a soldier, but uh, I want to be a better husband. And if you don't want me, then I'll, I'll leave. And you know, just is very understanding to her and is trying as hard as he can to be like a good husband and a good man. And I just, I really felt for him. Like, it feels like he's trying to be a good person and I appreciated it. BP, how about you? What's your favorite moment? Come back to me. You didn't write this down? I also had to rack my brain for this. Um, I'm still racking my brain around it. Exactly. And I think I actually have to take BP's funniest. I think it's just a nice humanizing slice of life scene to see a good friend Renus and Polo talk about celestial bodies, baby. 
I would say that my favorite part is also the same as Cole's because for all the same reasons. And I think that it just shows the absolute complexity of these characters because you are hating Varinus probably treats Niobe, but you're also hating Niobe for cheating on Varinus. And this is kind of their moment where I think either Varinus becomes Heisenberg. Yes. Everything I did, I did for the family. Polo, it's time to I kill. Think, <laughs> I think this is the moment where you either see, I think, and this is where the gray area question comes in. This is either where the marriage improves throughout the duration of the series, or it really deteriorates because even though they have this one heart to heart moment, it really brings out the complex. It brings out the complexities of these characters. And it makes you asking those questions of what is going to happen next, especially with Varinus's comment, the past is in the past, let it die. We're moving on. Well, you, you threw in the Kylo Ren quote there that Varinus didn't say that. <laughs> I said it on the initial review too, that let the past die. <laughs> and speaking of moving on, we're moving on to our next segment. Bum, bum, oh, Kay bum. hasn't shared. Kay hasn't shared his yeah. favorite moment. Yeah, no, guys. I felt I felt kind of bad because like my favorite moment, I tend to like be kind of long-winded here. But we actually basically all landed on the same point. So my favorite, my favorite thing this episode was just Verena's arc. Like kind of like how last episode was Mark Antony's episode. This was a little more quietly Verena's because he simultaneously has a lot of personal growth this episode, but also but with Niobe. But divorced from that is also his uh conflict about his position in life because he is given orders by caesar to advance onto the city of rome until he encounters resistance which we know he doesn't want to do he's a catonian he doesn't want to be a rebel but his commander is giving him these orders antony says that he can be trusted he's 13th legion to his core so he's an honorable man who will go against what the values in his heart is because again he doesn't want to be a rebel outside the city of rome he laments that the city is abandoned he thinks he's going to be tortured by the gods for invading it but when polo says hey let's go find that wagon and that girl varinus is like no we have orders to advance like in the same breath that he thinks it's sacrilege to invade rome he says we have to press on and go forward hanging up as a soldier i thought that was an interesting arc and yeah i also agree with the scene with niobe he wants to be a better man for his wife he consults with polo about being a better man for his wife he's acting paternal and they're talking about the stars he is just a great moment unto himself he susses out that the soldiers are lying the defects because they have soldiers boots the final scene with Niobe, of course, is very beautiful. And his quote there, I can change. I swear on the life of my daughter's son, I will change if you will have it so. And Niobe tears up at the invocation, but he wants to forge a new path with her with the past forgotten that he's a soldier and that's all he knows. He wants to be a better man. Uh, also, did you guys catch how old Niobe was when they got married, apparently? Yeah, <laughs> that was... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got at Rome. And... I, I like something that you brought up with this, K about like how last week was Mark Antony's episode. This week, it's kind of ver- more of a Verena's episode. I like that this is an ensemble cast and each episode, yes, 
you could argue that Varinas and Polo are the main characters, but this is truly an ensemble cast. And I kind of like that. E- and I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, but I like that each episode kind of shifts point of view. Like the first episode was kind of Pompey's point of view. Mostly last week was Mark Antony. This week is Marina. So I'm kind of excited to see how they take a character, make them the point of the story and show like the value of this ensemble cast. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, I don't know how much that'll keep up throughout the rest of the show, like if we do get more, you know, focus episodes. But yeah. All right, guys. Five questions on episode three and Al in the Thornbush. This is not questions about the episode, it's about the history behind the episode. Standings as of right now, which we're still playing with. Jacob eleven point five points in total. Colby P tied at twelve. Let's see what shakes up this episode. Question one, listeners at home play along. In this episode, Octavia's first husband. Glabius is killed. In real life, who was Octavia's first husband? Gaius Claudius Marcellus, Marcus Saturninus Glabius, Tiberius Claudius Nero, or Nero Claudius Drusus? I uh, bolded these final names here for you to pick between uh, Marcellus, Glabius, Nero, or Drusus. BP, I believe this is yours to answer first here. Who was Octavia's real life first husband, Marcellus, Glabius, Nero, Drusus? I'm going to guess Marcellus. Cole, how about you? I'm going to say Drusus. Drusus, okay. And how about you, Jacob? Gaius Claudius Marcellus. Marcellus is what you are thinking. All right. Uh, BP and Jacob. Congratulations. <laughs> you got that right. I'll censor that a bit. Uh, yes. Gaius Claudius Marcellus was Octavia's IRL first husband. Question two here. Cole's to answer first. Brutus would have an explicit reason to dislike Pompey and not join his cause. Why is it Pompey did not allow his daughter to marry Brutus? Brutus was rumored to be Pompey's illegitimate child. Pompey had been Brutus's stepfather, but Pompey divorced Servilia to pursue Caesar's daughter Julia, or was it because Pompey executed Brutus's father? What real-life reason would Brutus have to not like Pompey there? Cole, yours to answer first. What do you think? Well, I have no knowledge base here, so I'm just going to say C. C, okay, Pompey had been Brutus's stepfather, but he had divorced Servilia to pursue Julia. It's, it's a guessing game for you guys, certainly, so that's fine. BP, how about you? I'm going to guess D. Yeah, I think Pompey was in his prime. He was a pretty uh, crazy guy when it comes to fighting. I bet All fine. right. Jacob, how about you? I believe Pompey executed Brutus's father. Once again, BP and Jacob, you got some points there. Uh, Pompey's nickname, or uh, as one person nicknamed him, was the Young Butcher because he very, uh, he yeah, he was good at his job. All right. <laughs> Question three. I believe that BP mentioned this in a previous episode that in so many words, Pompey seemed pretty proud and pretty petty. This is not incorrect. What is a true example of Pompey's pettiness? Pompey tried to take credit for Fabius's defeat of Hannibal. Pompey tried to take credit for Crassus's defeat of Spartacus. Pompey tried to take credit for Agrippa's defeat of Sextus. Or Pompey tried to take credit for Gaius's defeat of Vercingetorix. Which of those is a real example that Pompey Magnus tried to take someone else's credit? BP, this is going to be yours to answer first. I'm going to guess B because you put my initials in this question. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, oh, it's okay. B. okay. I see. That's a good sec. All right, Cole, how about you? Uh, can I ask a, a question for clarification? And if you don't want to answer it after I ask it, that's fine. 
Okay. Are all of these things that he may have taken credit for, are all of these things things that happened in Pompey's lifetime? Or is it just like a like they're just taking like these are defeats that happened throughout history? These are real defeats and not necessarily all in Pompey's lifetime. Good okay, question. I'm gonna I'm gonna say D. Saying D. Okay. And how about you, Jacob? I believe uh, he tried to take credit for Gaius' defeat of Vercingetorix. Oh, okay. Okay. Let me see here. BP continuing a very good hot streak. Pompey tried to take credit for Crassus' defeat of Spartacus. Uh, you guys saying D, that's actually Gaius in this case is Gaius Julius Caesar. That's, that's what I knew that. Oh, I <laughs> thought okay. that was yeah. what it was. I knew that and that's why I picked it because I was like, uh, well, he was alive for that one. All right. Oh, okay. Okay. That's fair. All right. Question four. This, uh, I, bear with me, guys. I am not an expert in Latin, but it's, it's an ancient language. Some might say dead, but our modern pronunciations might not always be correct compared to how people like Caesar would have uh, said things back in his day. So the question is, how would Gaius Julius Caesar's name actually have been pronounced in his day? This is a big listening one. And Cole, this will be your answer first. Julius Caesar's name was pronounced Julius Caesar. Iulius Caesar, Julius Caesar, or Julius Caesar. In back, you know, back 2000 years ago in Caesar's day, our, again, our modern Latin might not always be correct. So what would have been the best approximation of how we think Julius Caesar's name was actually pronounced? Regular Julius Caesar, Iulius Caesar, Julius Caesar, or Julius Caesar? Cole, this is yours to answer first. I'm going to say D. Julius Caesar. All right, BP, how about you? I am also going to guess D. Also guessing D. All right, and how about you, Jacob? Paul and BP must listen to the bonus episode about names. Uh, it's Julius Kaiser. All right, uh, well done. That is a point for everybody. Congrats there. I listened to no bonus episode. I can explain how I knew that. Oh. Do you want to go really quick? Do you want to go uh, really quick, Cole? Uh, yeah, I... Just have a vague recollection of a guy I went to high school with pronouncing it Julius Caesar, and that was the only really? yes, <laughs> the only was I had. Was he? I don't know Norwegian slash. Did you have a Latin class in school? Or no, did I he believe have a it was a finance beard. class, and he did oh. not. <laughs> I didn't say the conversation had anything to do with the class. I just said I heard him say it. Yeah. Interesting. I knew. I only knew because I I knew I heard it somewhere. And I'm fairly certain this is the first time I heard it is when um, I first watched the usual suspects and they brought the name Kaiser Soze. I can be, I may be wrong, but I think that is where I first heard it. Yeah, no, Kaiser Sose is the alias. Um, yeah. uh, to let, let the cat out of the bag. Uh, okay, that, that old German term, Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II, German Emperor. Kaiser, it's the same word as Caesar. It's the German word for Caesar. So yes, that is uh, some relation there that might have helped you out there. Okay. Final question, guys. Julius Caesar held a magistrate that gave him legal immunity, and part of his kerfuffle was that his magistrate was going to expire, allowing him to be prosecuted for his crimes. That's kind of like what we see happening in the show. But what was the name of Julius Caesar's actual position or magistrate? He was the consul, the suffolk consul, the proconsul, or the praetorian in real life at this point. I believe this is BP's to answer first. Was Caesar consul, suffolk consul, proconsul, praetorian? I believe he was A, a consul. Consul. Okay. How about you, BP? Beep, uh, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, answer it again. He doesn't like the first one. I'm going to say C. All right. So Cole saying C. How about you, Jacob? I would like to answer correctly and say praetorian. 
Oh, okay, okay. That's a ooh, ooh, some venom there. Uh, one person got this correct. It was Cole. Julius Caesar's actual position at this time was proconsul. Jacob, you're kind of jumping the gun a little bit, man. Praetorians, oh. yeah, they're they're a real thing, but Julius Caesar was not one of them at this point. I didn't okay, know there was such thing as proconsul. Neither did that I. That was never brought up. Jacob, are you really a fan of the podcast? Proconsul the was never mentioned on DOTRR. I will. Oh. I will. Oh, I'll check those receipts, my friend. Hello, Future K here. I went ahead and did a handy command F on my notes and typed in the word proconsul to assuredly see that at some point in DOTRR, I explained what a proconsul was and I did not. So yes, Jacob was correct. I was a fool to have ever doubted uh, such a devout listener. And while we're here clearing up some history, a proconsul is a Roman governor. And after Roman consuls serve their one year, they become the governor and their position officially becomes called the proconsul. So that is what Julius Caesar was when he was in Gaul. He had been the consul, then he became the governor. His official title was proconsul. That's the real history. I'm an idiot and I'm eating crow. Oh, I'll check those receipts, my friend. We'll look at the standings here. BP cleaning up pretty well. I believe you got four points there. Jacob got three. Cole got two. So we'll see how this progresses. You playing along at home. Hopefully you guys are doing better than our folks here. But uh, with... hey, we're doing pretty good. Uh, indeed, indeed. I got an 80%. That's a B. Sound like one of my students there, BP. Uh, voice and all, yeah. <laughs> we'll go ahead, guys, and get on to our outro here. So, the episode that we're talking about next week is HBO's Rome, Season 1, Episode 4, Stealing from Saturn. If you have thoughts about the show, HBO's Rome, you can tweet them to at DOTRRPod on Twitter. If you want to learn more about the real history of this episode, roughly the first half of my podcast, Death of the Roman Republic, Chapter 12, Caesar v. Pompey, covers this. Not the full episode. This is more of a, a chessboard episode in terms of HBO's Rome, but the first half of DOTR chapter 12 will get you there. This HBO episode took some creative liberties. Leave a rating on Apple Podcasts if you would so indulge us. And my fellow hosts, what would you like to promote this week? Hi, my name is Jacob. Uh, you can still follow me on Twitter at, at SoupCatFisholo, or you can watch my YouTube about nature, which hasn't uh, uploaded anything new recently. But uh, also, if you live in the state of Kansas, I'm in a play, and you should come to it, and you can find details on my Twitter, probably. All right. Well, thank you there for sharing, Jacob. I, I did want to give a quick shout out here. Jacob's personal Twitter at Soup Catfish Yellow. It's a great follow if you're a fan of Anya Taylor Joy news. And I wanted to check. Are you just going to pepper in a different I, female ignoring, celebrity? Ignoring, ignoring, plan ignoring, plan ignoring. <laughs> uh, I wanted to check in, Jacob, because like, I, you know, oh I think we God. were all shocked two days ago <laughs> when the news broke that Anya Taylor Joy secretly got married. Like, how's your heart, dude? Are we are we doing okay, man? It's just another one, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> used to it. I'm used to it at this point. Uh, Bindi Irwin is that her name? That oh my name. God! <laughs> how do you how are you pulling all these out of the hat? You've you've lost one for next week. Uh, oh, that's a good lore. Oh God! There's lore hey. behind that one, but I won't go into it. <laughs> hey. hey. Jacob, remember, there's always hope for Lord. She's in a relationship. You should watch my hour-long video about her latest album, and you'll know. That's good. Wait, hold hey. on. That's a different YouTube channel. That's a different. That's YouTube a channel, different though, right? YouTube channel where I talk about music when I feel like it. Yeah, yeah. She's not engaged or married, so nothing is concrete quite yet in this relationship. 
Yeah, you could pull Niobe or something. Um, <laughs> BP, something to promote, maybe? Uh, follow me on Letterboxd, BP Oil Spill 98. I had just recently uploaded my top 50, yes, five zero films of all time. Whoa. Uh, BP, real quick, do you want to give us a little taste of like two films we might see on there, just real quick? Uh, as a movie that I had mentioned previously in this current episode, you will definitely see Pulp Fiction very high on that list. You will also, it's not high on the list, but you will see Martin Scorsese's 1970s classic, Taxi Driver. What about Bridge Over the River Kwai? Where does Bridge Over the River Kwai land? I have actually not seen it, which disappoints me because I love Alec Guinness and David Lean films like Lawrence of Arabia. What about Bridge to Terabithia? (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Quick, I had to Google more Bridge. Got some promo this week? I do not, but you know, we'll see where the next week takes us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, BP, since you took point this episode, do you want to try to hit us uh, with the outro here? He doesn't know. That was almost the, that, you were pretty close. <laughs> that's what that's what the friends, Romans, countrymen's that's the noise they were making during this episode as they're fleeing Rome. Yeah. <laughs> that so, that was a little hint, BP. That's like the first half. Friends, so, Romans, countrymen. You, hmm? Friends, Romans, countrymen. Good night. <laughs> sure. Okay, good luck. All right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, with all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen. I hope you enjoy the show. All right.